So I want to talk about sizing. I want to talk about as if about the fact that size does matter. In fact, at least when we're talking about microservices, in fact, not only if we're talking about microservices. In fact, I've been in this business for a long time, and actually I found this to be the key question pretty much regardless of which architectural pattern, technology, or building block it is that we use, that we talk about. Um, I, was, I was there when objects were introduced. I was there when we were talking about components, and we had talks about functional programming being the solution. We talked about plug-in structures based on dynamic, dynamically loaded libraries. We talked about things like enterprise Java beams. We talked about lots of different structures, all destined to help us make our systems more modular. And all of them um, have sort of similar aims. Some of these things are more on a, on a system level, some of them are more on a, on a software level, on a, on a logical level, like for example a package, but they all share the same goal. We want to bundle things together that belong together and separate stuff that doesn't. And the question of how big to make those things is obviously a very, very important one. And to to give you a sort of spoiler to the, to the summary at the end, it all depends, right? That's sort of the obvious consultant answer to any question. I'm not going to give you anything else today, but I'm going to give you some indications at least, or maybe get you to discuss some of those things that I think are important when discussing that question. So when you talk about sizing things, one of the first things is that you talk about the commonalities. So if two things um, have something in common, um, then um, you... Um, you put them into one thing. And all those things, the stuff that I mentioned on this slide, share some commonalities regardless of on which level they are, right? They have some sort of boundary concept. There is an idea of being on the inside or on the outside. Something is hidden within and something is surfaced, exposed to the outside world. They have some dependencies. If they were completely isolated, we wouldn't have any problem, right? If they're separate systems that don't talk to each other, that are not connected, then everything's perfect sort of the best kind of communication that we can have, none, right? Because we introduce no dependency of any kind. We have some sort of interface, whether it's a binary call level interface on some DLL level or a network interface of some kind, and we have some interface exposed that connects us to the outside world. And also pretty importantly, we have an environment in which the whole thing runs. And typically that environment has to be shared. It may impose a lot of limits, a lot of limitations on the things that we have to put into that environment, or it may be very loose on that. And finally, we have the thing itself, right? The implementation, the inside part, which is also pretty important to, to that thing, right? So how big shall we make um, each individual piece? If I, if, I were able, if I were able to give that answer, I would have found the holy grail, right? It's just, you know, just make it the right size. If I had an easy solution, easy formula, things would be perfect. We want to separate separate things and join things that belong together. And that's such a fundamental question that, it's been, that has been addressed for about 40 years, something like that. 50, close to 50 now, 45. So the very first thing that you can, that you can look at, and that is actually a paper still very much worth reading, was written in 1971 by um, the father of the encapsulation principle, the information hiding principle, Dave Parnas. And if you look at that, then you can, in this paper, read about different ways of decomposing something into modules. And the key insight that he describes in that paper is that it's a good idea to uh, create this locality of decisions, right? If you put this stuff 
together so that how you implemented something is hidden from the outside world. It's much more resistant to change. It actually, actually helps you address change over the lifetime of your system. So that's obviously one very important, one very important way of doing things, right? You, you try to see, well, listen, how, I could do this different ways, so maybe I should encapsulate that somehow and isolate it from the outside world. And that's true whether you're talking about classes or packages or modules or services or microservices or what have you. In a similar vein, you can look at the other god of computer science, uh, Edgar Dijkstra, who was talking about this and who actually invented the idea of separation of concern. Right? You want to have something that is concerned only with one thing. You don't want it to be a mixture of multiple things. Now, this it can be a lot of different things. And typically, you have things crossing in orthogonal ways. Right? You have um, different aspects within a module that is just one aspect of another set of modules. So you have separate concerns on multiple levels. And we'll get back to that idea pretty soon. But the key idea here is that, to, that this, this allows you to focus on one thing as opposed to doing a lot of things. And again, that's closely related to another person that you might recognize, Uncle Bob, who has, I think, not 100% sure, but I think he has coined that term SRP, the single responsibility principle, building on the stuff that I talked about before, which is this idea that, that, should, that there should be just one reason to change a thing. He was talking about classes and, and modules, but that doesn't really matter. It can be any, any other of the structuring mechanisms as well. He was talking about this thing having only one reason to change. And this, this afterthought here is also very, very interesting. This is only interesting if that thing actually changes. Right? If you decompose stuff in a way that, uh, that is based on some assumption of yours, right? if you think that is what's likely to change, and then something completely different changes over the course of time, then your architecture addressed the wrong thing. And that is actually, in my experience, very, very likely to happen. Because if you try to predict the future, it's pretty hard. So all of those things, all of this stuff that people have been talking about for a lot of time, um, come down to the same ideas, this idea of high cohesion and loose coupling. Being a, being a non-native speaker, I actually have to look up some words sometimes. So I did that for some of those words, and I did some, some, some actual research as to the, as to the uh, background of those words and about the exact meaning of what they actually, actually do. If you're a native speaker, bear with me here for a second. So if I, something is adhesive, it sticks to each other, but it needs something to do that. Right? It doesn't do it on its own. You need to have something that makes it stick to something else. Whereas if it's cohesive, it's, well, that's the, that's the textbook definition of a recursive or a, a useless definition, so let's get, get to cohesion. Then it actually sticks together on its own. It sticks together because there is an there is an, there's an built-in reason for it to doing it, right? Like if, if module, molecules of, of a certain kind stick together because it's, that is the ca characteristic of the substance they're made of. You don't have to enforce that. It happens on its own, right? Which is something that I, that I like very much because this cohesion thing, this cohesive thing really is, a, is something that you discover. It's not something that you, that you cannot make things be cohesive by willing them to be that. They are or they are not. It's not something you can enforce. Also like this one, but that's not for you folks. Actually, one of the things that I, that I found really nice is a, a pretty old article from a ThoughtWorks anthology thing. You should restart doing those things. I like them. And I like this particular article a lot about object calisthenics, um, which is a set of rules that you can apply for a limited amount of time. So this is not and was never intended as advice for your actual production projects. Right? But this is intended as something that you can do if you do, if you do a day hacking event or something like that. 
have every object-oriented programmer work by those rules for a day, and they will learn a lot about coupling and cohesion. Because these rules, that's, which seem sort of arbitrary, actually make you and you, force you to develop software differently than you probably do. Unless you're an old-school small-talk developer, you're not used to building software that way. And that can be an eye-opening experience to many people who do that for the first time. If you look at it, you can see a lot of things like the law of Demeter and things like that hidden in there, right? Made very practical. You have to follow those rules dogmatically for a day, just for a day, and then check whether it's changed the way you program. So, coupling and cohesion. If you're looking at cohesion, then obviously there are some indicators for that, right? If stuff is cohesive, if it belongs together, then it's also simple to understand if there's a good reason, there's, it's an obvious completely obvious reason why it belongs together. And as a whole, it can be explained as one thing. You don't have to have a two-part document to explain what that thing does, right? It has just one entry in the outline, the main thing. It's simple to explain, simple to understand. It has one reason to change. That's the, that's the single responsibility principle. It has one stakeholder which is one thing that I think ties it very, very nicely to Conway's Law. I actually don't have a slide on Conway's Law on this. I'm very proud of myself. I resisted the temptation to put in another Conway's Law slide. Um, so one stakeholder means that there's one role that wants something from this particular thing. Ideally, of course, that's not always the case, but ideally it is. It should be really difficult to split into more pieces. Because if it's easy to do that, then it's not cohesive, right? That's your pro then it should, probably should be two things. And it's typically re reused as a whole. This is the thing, that is the unit of use. Let's, let's stick with use. Let's not talk about reuse, let's talk about use. That's the one thing. You want to use it as a whole. You're not interested in using only one half of it. You want to use it as a whole thing if you want to use it, if you're willing to depend on it. Conversely, there are some indicators of weak cohesion, right? When do we want to split things apart? Obviously, if it's hard to understand, if it's a hard to understand thing, then it's probably too big. It's, at least it could be one reason. Maybe it's just hard because the business domain is hard to understand. That's a good reason. But most of the time, it's hard to understand because it's complex, unnecessarily complex. It's difficult to explain, obviously. There are many reasons to change, right? And Obviously, you might have multiple people requesting something, which is really something that hurts you in actual software development in larger organizations. Because people uh, tend to shout at you a lot if you never do what they want. But if you have multiple people doing that, it's pretty hard to, well, maybe you pick the one who has the louder voice. Who knows? But you have to make up your mind on whose, whose ideas to implement first. People tend to want to partially reuse something like this, right? So I'm not interested in all of that. I just want that. So they think about whether they want to, reuse, want to use it at all. Maybe it's, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to do that. So if something is, is not cohesive, then it's obviously divisible, right? It's obviously easy to divide it into more parts, which is, well, not as obvious as it might seem in many cases. So let's talk about some of the things that might be a reason why you would want to split something. Right? There are many different kinds of reasons. One of them is that it might, um, well, actually, let, let, me, let me add something to this. So these are, these are the kind of the, the obvious things from the cohesion part of things. But obviously divisible can mean a lot of things. And some of those things are cross-cutting concerns, are things from another, from another category of, of kind of obvious things. So let's talk about the forces for separation for a while. First of all, you might have different environments, right? Those, there might be different environments and the things that are in that module might belong to different environments. Maybe some of that stuff needs to run on that device, some of that needs to run on that device. 
right? Maybe there are some cross-cutting concerns that only apply to parts of the whole that you're looking at. Maybe you have different needs for reuse. Maybe you need to reuse something somewhere, but not the other part of it. Maybe that's a good reason for that. Maybe you have different frequencies of change. There's it's the same person, it's the same stakeholder, it does the same thing, but it changes with a different frequency. So you may be forcing people to work with the new thing, even though it's only a part that changes. You may have a good reason for a parallelizing development, maybe because of scaling issues. You want to develop very, very quickly. It's one thing, but you have to split it and so, so to make parallel development easier. You may have isolated runtimes for parts of it, right? So that could be like the browser and the server part, things that run at different, different places. Any kind of technical dependencies that are not true for all, for all parts in that thing, right? So some of the things are uh, dependent on, I don't know, some algorithm that is, uh, I don't know, some graph algorithm or some video encoding thing, and maybe that is not true for the rest of the thing, so you don't want to have everything depend on this. The same is true for domain things, right? Only part of your module might be dependent on a particular piece of domain logic, so because you want to isolate those things, you split it again. And finally, there may be implementation reasons. Maybe a part of your logically cohesive whole is better implemented using Erlang. Maybe the other part is better implemented using Java because you have a decent set of Java libraries that you can reuse. So you can say the cohesive force is stronger and I keep it together and I make a decision for one of those things, or you split it again and decide to use two different implementation strategies here. There's something that I like to call weight. It's, a, it's not a concept that I, that I can define very strictly, but software to me always has a certain feeling of of being a big or a small thing. It's not only related to the lines of code, it's related to the complexity, to the number of libraries it uses, to the number of people that are needed to maintain it. Maybe this thing needs to be split apart into the heavy part and the lighter part, because maybe you can implement the lighter part with a, with a fast scripting language and the heavy part with a, with a statically typed heavier language. So that could be another reason. Another force, when you cut things apart, are um, the order in which you apply certain things. So you can say that you have sort of multiple dimensions along which you can cut something apart. So many systems that I know, and I'm sure you know as well, have been built using this fantastic layering model, right? This is sort of every architecture diagram that you'll ever see. Ted Neward has a version of this flipped 90, 90 degrees to the side, and then it's box line, box line cylinder. Every architecture diagram ever. So the same thing applies. This is basically everything you've ever seen. And then if you make that the first, the first structuring mechanism, that becomes the most important thing. Some people, I think, have done the horrible, horrible mistake of applying that to enterprise architecture, which is how you end up with data services and logic services and UI services across an SOA, which I think is the worst idea that you could possibly have. And then you put the next level, maybe the modular structure, maybe the business structure, as the next thing inside those layers. But you can also do it in a different way, by starting out with the with this outer thing, you maybe have these module boundaries as the first class citizen of your system. So the order in which you apply those structuring things matters a lot for the resulting architecture in the end. Let me one, highlight one final thing before I finally get to microservices, which is the environment thing. This is also true for everything, right? You have this diagram of things that are connected somehow, and you're actually lucky if you have a diagram like that because it seems somebody actually cared about the business domain concepts and the dependencies between them, and that's pretty nice, but you can never, you don't ever, uh, you're never, never allowed to forget that this thing lives in an environment, right? There is something that needs to be there 
for those things to talk to each other, to be connected. The environments can be lots of different things, right? It could be language runtimes, replication servers, if you still believe in that thing, or it could be uh, your operating system, so it's just processes that you, know, that you use, or it could be container hosts, actually container runtimes, um, orchestrating things, could be the hardware itself, supervisors, whatever it is, right? So different kinds of environments. So this is all pretty generic. When I started, when I started this thing, I noticed that a lot of what I, what I put into, onto my slides was basically applicable to anything. It doesn't really matter whether I'm talking about microservices or not. But I want to talk about microservices next, so let's, let's focus on that. Again, let's talk first about the common thing. Um, I believe many, many, very often at least, if you hear people talk about microservices, they sort of assume that we all share a common understanding of what that is. And maybe that is something like this, right? A microservice sort of is focused on one thing, right? It's, it's, it does one thing, does one thing well. Um, it allows for autonomous operation. It is a, a clear, I think, a clear anti-pattern if you have to run all your microservices at once or none of them at all, but let's, let's get to that later. So auto autonomy of some kind is a very important trait of all of the different kinds of microservices that we see. Isolated development, you want to be able to have different people develop different microservices without stepping on each other's toes. And James talked about that just now. You want to be able to independently deploy them. To me, that is the most important part. To my, my favorite kind of microservice, that is the most important thing. Organizationally, you want to be able to decide things locally. You could say it's, it's an architectural approach of avoiding meetings. Right? You don't want to spend your time in meetings because meetings suck. Nobody wants to do that, unless it's the people you go to lunch with. Right? You can have a meeting with them while you're having your lunch, that's fine. And they go back and develop something, but if it's you know, this, this huge room with, with 25 people from different departments talking about when to deploy something, that's just, that just sucks. That said, even though this is sort of what's shared between all the different kinds of microservices, I think there are a lot of differences in the actual approaches, and a lot of that centers around size, in my view. So let me, give, let me start with an example. Let's assume you have something like this. So we have, a, we have sort of some sort of infrastructure. I don't really care what sort of messaging system or event bus or even, even synchronous infrastructure it is. Let's just assume it's some sort of asynchronous messaging pub-sub kind of system. Then you could have different kinds of microservices connected to that infrastructure. And you could use that to, for example, build a pricing engine. So whenever you need to calculate the price of something, it has multiple components in my fictional scenario here. There's a default for the product price, and there are various discounts and rebates and special rules depending on the client and depending on um, the uh, campaign of the day, whatever it is that, you're, that make up your actual price. And you could have each of those things implemented by a separate microservice. Each of them could be implemented in a different language, they would communicate asynchronously, and they would all contribute to that final calculation that comes up with a, with a final number, maybe decomposed into the individual components so that the customer actually knows why this has been applied. Now, the goal of these microservices is to collaborate to calculate, in fact, one value. That's what they do, right? So I would call this the really, really super small, really micro, nano, whatever services. These are actually the only ones that deserve the name microservices, in my view. I don't think they're the most common ones, but let's just categorize them as the smallest kind. They're as small as possible, a few hundred lines of code, and they're typically triggered by events, and they typically communicate asynchronously. Again, I'm simplifying a bit, but that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. 
And basically, there is one source of truth on anything related to this kind of microservice, and it sits about five lines back there, which is Fred. So any recent Fred George talk will talk, in my view, about those kinds of microservices. Right? It's, it's, I think it's a, very, it's a fascinating concept, very nice, and it really matches the thing that people doubt, which is that it's possible to build something useful with just 10 lines of code. If you have this kind of view, then it absolutely is possible to do that. Maybe not if you're using using a, a verbose language, but in a high-value language, 10 to 25 lines, whatever, it could be nice. I also think the serverless, the whole serverless part matches nicely this idea, right? You have things like, you know, it's like, um, if you don't know the serverless thing, that's kind of the cool version of database triggers in the cloud. So you have something that gets fired, uh, gets triggered if you upload something to S3 or something like that. And these could all be very small focus things. I think that's a cool concept. I think it has a, has a lot of consequences. I think the goal here is to have something that collaborates very closely towards a common goal. It's, it's really, it's micro even as the whole, if you look at the whole thing, right? You have this pretty strong infrastructure dependency. You can implement those things in different languages, but they share this assumption that there is a fast infrastructure that connects them. It depends on what kind of technology you use, how, how much you care about this, but in general, that's, that's the assumption. You also might have common interfaces, let's say something like add price components, something like that, that would be implemented by all of those services. They could be called multiple times um, during just one cal calculation. I think there's a sort of similarity to what people are doing with actors. It's like a, you have very, very many of those very small, very focused things that handle events that come in. And I think it's, it's really well suited to these decomposable business problems where, where this model actually matches, matches uh, this scenario very, very nicely. Right? You, you have this idea of, of the actual result emerging from the collaboration, communication of all those things, which I think is a fascinating and very cool thing. Size one. Size two. Let's talk about something that is uh, on the web. We have a product detail page, or it could be something that's on your mobile phone where there's something is displayed as the result of a query. And they have multiple services that maybe combine different things, like the core product data with some sort of description and the images and maybe some customer reviews and maybe you have related content or recommended other products. All of those things contribute to the, to the end result to the final page. So you maybe have some sort of orchestration layer, maybe you have some higher level services that combine lower level services and of course, this can go on and on and on. You can have lots of cascading service invocations here that all contribute to the final result, which maybe is a com composite page composed of results from all of those different things. Right? That is, I think, a very different model. Of course, it has similarities in that each of those services can be independently deployed, on, autonomously operated, all of those things. But it's slightly different in my view. It's typically a little bigger, so those things don't tend to have 10 lines. It's more like they have a few hundred or maybe a thousand lines of code, right? They're deployed as processes, maybe with their own, with their own embedded Java container or something like that, right? So that would be small, self-hosted kind of thing, collaborating, still small, often synchronously, doesn't have to be, but often synchronously. So the calls that you saw here would actually uh, go from here synchronously down here. The result would be collab collaborative or would be assembled here and then used to render or create the page. Um, the whole containerizing, containerization thing matches this very nicely. Also the streaming parallelization thing, so that you can have results, things come streaming in and they're, they're actually um, um, collected and transformed and then used to build the final thing. This all matches this thing very nicely. 
And we've seen that very often as well. So this would be, I think, what you could term the Netflix model of microservices. Um, the fascinating talks about this. I don't have a name here, even though I should, be Adri should put Adrian Cockroft here as one of the people talking about this. There are others who do similar things. Um, and I think we have, we have a, a pretty different model. It also has consequences uh, to the overall architecture, outcome of the overall architecture. If you choose this, then you also have this closed collaboration, common goal thing, but it's slightly different than the one we had before. You have this idea of now um, communicating synchronously, which of course increases the result of something failing, so you have to address that and you build in resilience, stability patterns like um, um, bulkheads or um, circuit breakers using something like Hystrix or whatever library suits your needs or maybe using a different environment. So you make sure that even though you call somebody who might call somebody who might call somebody who might call somebody, which in general means it's going to fail, um, you make sure that you can handle that nicely and that you can actually have nice fallbacks and can try again and that you don't drown in, in, in results coming from somewhere. So it's often combined with this parallel streaming approach. I think this is well suited to environments where you have these very strong scalability requirements, right? Because it really can parallelize the hell out of everything. And you make, you have a lot of overhead, but you, it's worth it because you can, and maybe only, can only using this approach, serve the actual needs of your clients, which is why many very, very large sites use this approach, and which is also why it might not be the best approach for you unless you have the same non-functional requirements. Size two. Let's talk about size three. Size three would be this example e-commerce site where you have different parts like the search and the product details in the catalog. And you can imagine each of those being like a separate website. This, this, is the, this is where I browse the catalog and then when I want to view a particular product page, I go to some place. So they're actually not, not connected, but they're mostly connected down here, right? So maybe the result here returns a link. When I click on it, I, I get the UI from here. And maybe I have included some preview of something from over here using some, you know, a little JavaScript transclusion using PJAX or something similar. Same thing here. So that is what you, what you could call um, a microservice or the way I like to describe is more of a self-contained autonomous system. Self-contained system is the name that I, or my, my colleagues and I tend to use. It typically is a little bigger. It has the UI and the database included in the whole thing because now the microservice is actually the whole thing, the little application that you have that does those things. The 12-factor app approach would be quite similar to that. It could be, and I'm going to get to that, composed of smaller things, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. You can see those things uh, on different sites. Let me start with those here, like uh, Autodee, which is a German site, but they write a lot about it on their development blog. There's a number of different ones like Metro and Kaufhof and others that I know personally pretty well. Um, there are also things like, uh, like Groupon, which, which have nice articles talking about this. To a certain degree, Amazon, although they fall between those two camps, right? They have these things where a page is composed of lots of different things, but they also have this model of building something from top to bottom, including persistence and everything. So this is, again, a different approach because the size differs, right? You have larger independent systems that include the data and the UI, if, if there is a UI for the thing to have. And the main goal here is that each of those things can individually and completely on its own serve the majority of requests. So there is no, none of this cascading things. It's also not collaborating to a common goal over eventing or something. It's really an autonomous thing. They might integrate, and they typically integrate using the front end, just using simple, uh, simple links and have asynchronous communication for the rest. Um, so I think this is well suited if the main goal is that it is the separation of development teams because this is a larger unit, right? This is something that you would give to a complete team. Now, 
which of those sizes is the right one? That is, of course, a rhetorical and therefore pretty stupid question, right? Of course, none of these is right or wrong. These are all options. And in fact, I had to find a good reason to include, include this thing. You can compose them. You can, have, actually, can actually have this fractal relationship, right? You can have blocks within building blocks. You could come up with your own hierarchy, something like this, where you have a relationship between things like systems and services and maybe modules and packages and classes and methods and whatever it is. And then you define certain rules for each of those levels. That could be sort of your formalized architecture kind of thing. I'm not necessarily suggesting you do this for everything, but I want to throw it at you as a, as a possible idea. So we combine those things, and um, we have different rules on different levels. Different modularization levels require different rules and strategies. In fact, one thing that you notice when you start doing this is that when you start out with something like this, that is a single monolithic deployable system, and you split it apart because you now have those services things in there, then you notice that you don't actually have to do everything the same way everywhere, right? You could say, well, my modularization strategy that I had before was really only there because my subsystems were so big. Now I'm cutting them into smaller pieces, and because the pieces are smaller, I can actually do away with one of those modularization strategies. Let me give you a good example, enterprise Java beans. There is specifically targeting large systems. If you don't build a large system, I don't see a very good reason to use well, at least the traditional kind of using EJBs. Um, and the same is true for other things. You also can start experimenting with different things because you now have this boundary and this idea of different independent deployment and testing and localized decisions, right? So each of those things can do their own thing and can make up their own mind. So how, how strongly you standardize this is up to you, right? Theoretically, from the overall, from the high-level view of things, you're completely free to do it any way you like. So I've talked about some ways of doing things. I'd also like to talk about some way of not doing things. Right? So let me, let me leave you with some anti-patterns. Um, I just picked a few of them, but these are things that I've actually seen because right now, whenever, whenever I get introduced to a project, the basic idea seems to be let's do microservices. At least if it's a new, well, no, that's not even true. Not even if it's a new project, even if it's an existing, everybody's talking about microservices. Rarely have I seen something so hyped as, as this particular thing. And actually like a lot of the, a lot of the aspects. So, onto the, some, some anti-patterns that I think are emerging. One is this one. So we have this whole set of microservices because we've built very, very small things and we have lots of them um, and they're independently deployable and they have their own strategy, so maybe they're, they fulfill the definition of a microservice. But the question is, do they help me reach the goal that I want to reach, right? I have those stakeholders, I have somebody sitting here who depends on, I don't know, this ugly cloud of microservices over here. And I have another one sitting here who depends on a different, well, you can see that there's some overlap here. And of course, I have to make it worse by adding a third one, which means if the stakeholders are interested in overlapping microservices, then you haven't solved one of the fundamental problems, which is that you don't want to have meetings, right? You don't want to talk to three different stakeholders about the thing. You don't want to have to synchronize your delivery schedule on the you know, marketing plans of different departments or product lines. That's exactly what he wanted to, av to avoid. Now, this is a microservice architecture because it has those small things, but it doesn't help you reach your goal. So maybe you should have thought of this first, maybe in a hierarchical level. Maybe you can say, well, this is the thing I start first with, with the, you know, the overall structure, pretty similar to what James just uh, demonstrated with the, with the high-level product line thing, and then you think about the second level of decomposition within those things and maybe shared across those things. 
it, it, get, it gets worse. Um, do you have any guess what this could be? The little gray thing that I put in here? That is actually the standardized microservice infrastructure stack that your platform team spent developing, which means that you have this person now here interested in everything. So, and this is really critical because you may now end up with the worst kind of stakeholder that there is, somebody who is knowledgeable technically and has their own agenda about what they want to do and what they want to achieve, which might not at all be in line with what this is. This means that now you have different teams having a meeting with a platform person to talk about what's the right way to do microservices. It's not something you want to have. So be very, very careful of how powerful you make that platform team. I like the approach that, that a client of us has taken, which is to do away with this altogether and say, our platform team is called Amazon AWS. They do the platform stuff. We don't do that. We have some people who meet regularly to talk about the new cool services that Amazon has built, but we're not setting up a team to do this. Maybe that's a possible approach. So you might think you're decoupled, but you might end up not being so. But you still pay the price for the microservices, right? All the communication overhead and all of that still maybe not worth paying for here. The second anti-pattern is the, the anemic, the bloodless service, where essentially you end up wrapping some data down here, you know, like JDBC in disguise. You have this, you have some, some thing down here, some entity maybe, and you have a little service that helps you create, read, update, delete that entity. It even has a REST interface with matching HTTP verbs. No hypermedia whatsoever. It doesn't really matter. These things are pretty rare these days. People typically don't build something like this. But what I see very often is something like this. So it's sort of reusable. It's a reusable service like a customer service that allows me to manipulate individual customers and maybe get a list of customers and also has some integrity rules and some checking, some business logic, which is pretty nice but still not the kind of thing I'm looking for as something that I can actually apply. It's something that I can use to build something that I can then apply to my actual problem, right? If I'm a client, my interest is not creating customer records. My interest is doing the complete process, including all the you know, validations, the talking to multiple systems, fraud detection, address check, um, uh, credit worthiness, whatever it is that I do if I enter a new customer into the system. And that is typically not something that's at this level. That is typically something that's at this level. And now there's a, there's a problematic relation here because this damn reusability bites us again. Reusability is optimal if a thing is maximally useless. Because if it's useless and unspecific, I can use it everywhere. There's no, I can, it's, it's great, I can use it everywhere, right? We'll get to that in a second. So something specific includes some process, includes some, you know, like, like a business rule. If this, if this thing is more than 5,000, pounds or euros or dollars, then uh, somebody on that level has to green light it before it goes to the next step. That's a process rule that I want to enforce across all my channels, all across my different cli uh, clients, and that belongs behind the API and not in front of the API. So I think this danger of building next to useless or maybe low-level usable building blocks is very high, especially if you approach things from the bottom up. And you should be, should be very, very wary of those entity services. I think they're an, I could, could have turned them into a separate own anti-pattern. This thing of having a record as the center of a service, I think, is a clear sign that you approach things from the bottom instead of, as opposed to from, from the top. And related to that is the one that I, that I have, have hinted at, which is this, this, um, this unjustified reuse kind of thing, right? So I have, I have different kinds of, maybe these are also services or maybe it's applications, whatever your structure is. I have different things, they're separated, that's nice. 
And I look at them and I, I find that I have some things that I can reuse across both, right? Maybe I have some templating to do. That's a, that's a pretty cool service, why not? That service just m merges some, some net data with some template and returns a formatted document in H HTML format, why not? Could do something like that and my email service could send that out. And even printing and maybe, maybe spell check, these are all, you know, it gets, it gets a little more technical in that direction, but you can see that. At that level, I'm starting to doubt whether that's a good idea. Now, you could argue that this is essentially Redis, right? This is, this is a microservice that just maintains hashtag. Well, well, maybe that's a good idea. But I think you'll agree that if we arrive at this thing, we've, we've, we've created something that may be reusable, but that's only going to hurt us, right? It's just if something is in two places doesn't necessarily mean it should be factored out and put into its own service. It's sort of the downside of the, of the dry principle. Right, and said, so we should, you should be wary of that. It's not always wrong to factor things out if you feel that many people can profit from that, but you should be very, very aware of the downside, which is that now everybody depends on this, on this thing, right? And now you have to synchronize, well, maybe here or here, now you have to synchronize the releases of this thing and it becomes a dependency of multiple parties and you have those damn meetings again that you don't want to have. So, let me summarize. Some of the things that I believe we've learned across, across the last few decades about this whole thing, and, well, I've learned, my colleagues and I. So the first thing is, it may be a good idea to be explicit about your meta model, right? This idea of this is what's allowed at that point. Not talking about it may work for a conference talk, but it's pretty hard if you actually want to write actual software. Sometimes, at some point in time, you have to all agree what this word means. What is a microservice in our infrastructure? Is it one of those small Fred things, one of the larger Adrian things, or one of the whatever system self-contained system things, right? It just, it depends. You should also very much avoid ever using the word meta model again, unless you qualify this way, because this is, you know, this will trigger so many people never talking to you again. But I think it's still what it is, right? It's, it's, the, it's the model that you use to model, well, to create your models. What I also think works very well, regardless of the level, is to separate macro and micro decisions. You have certain things that need to apply for those services to talk to each other. Like, for example, we'll, maybe we agree to use um, RESTful HTTP with JSON payloads, or maybe we use, uh, I don't know, AMQP, whatever it is. You, you, you agree on some sort of communication protocol. You maybe agree to write log messages to standard out. Maybe you agree to wrap everything in Docker containers. It doesn't really matter, but that's a decision that should be applied to everything and that is critical for the whole thing to work together, right? So that's understandable. Everybody will understand that that's a good reason. Well, almost everybody. Most people will understand it's a good reason and they will follow that rule. But don't mandate the same kind of rigidity for things like the choice of programming language or development environment or library to use. That should be a decision that can, a theory at least, be made differently for each service. Now, I can hear some people say, well, no, this is going to be chaos. Everybody's going to do whatever they want. Well, maybe that's cool. Maybe you want that, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're in a conservative organization where you have to standardize things a little bit. Then go ahead and do that, but leave yourself the opportunity to change your mind a year from now. Right? If you put everything into one thing, and if this leaks, if this abstraction leaks to the outside world, don't do that. So don't over-regulate everything. Right? Just stick with those macro rules at the, at the level, and then provide things that people can view as best practices, that you can pull in, maybe suggestions, maybe reusable things like you know, a Maven archetype or some sort of 
a generator that sets up a simple microservice so that people can get going. They can use it or they can build their own. It doesn't really matter, but you help them without enforcing something on that. Now, as to the decomposition is all, I think you have to start somewhere, right? And, you, and working, just starting without discussing too long about it is actually a good idea, right? So you trusting your gut, making a good guess, well, I've built systems like this, let's build a new one, is probably not a bad idea. Trusting your gut, making a good guess, is something you have to do to get things off the ground. So just do that and don't think too much about it. Don't flee into technicalities. I've seen this happen uh, quite often now where people spend all their time talking about which service registry to use, how to do service location, how to do load balancing. It's all, all very nice, but maybe start by you know, the business side of things and just decompose things into something that has some business relevance as opposed to, to, um, to just playing with the infrastructure. I know we all have some sort of domain allergy and don't want to talk about this boring business stuff. Many people have that, but it's not the way to go here. Wrapping up, this is another thing that I find very important as the level zero kind of thing, the level zero structuring mechanism. If you come up with a, with a set of, with the initial map of things that you want to do, the organization has to play a very important part. So there's the, the Conway slide in disguise, right? If you, if you, if you maintain that, that's a very, uh, very important thing. Don't center on, around technical commonality because that will make you, these people do the database, these people do the communications, these people do the UI. That's exactly not what you want. You want to have an organizational structure like this is the sales thing and this is the, this is the product provisioning kind of thing and this is the accounting thing. You want those things to drive the rest. Prepare to be wrong on every level because you can only make a good guess and it's going to be wrong. That's, that's, the, that's the nature of things, but that's fine, right? Prepare. Prepare for that. Don't aim for perfection and stubbornly stick at it because this is now the model that we've used in 10 different places because that's not the way how things work. And with that, I'm done almost on time, including the fire alarm, right? So thanks a lot. So we do have questions, I guess. Yes, there are questions in the app, and I don't have a microphone, so you probably want to choose and okay. read. So, so when do we know that we have reached the point from which we cannot break down a class of component any further? Um, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer on that because, well, actually, I think it's probably you probably notice once it starts feeling really weird, right? If you if you if you have a system, if you have a service that you break down into parts, and you see that the parts start communicating like crazy, and you see that those teams always have meetings together, and that you essentially, from an organizational standpoint, view them as just one team, one thing, then maybe it shouldn't be two things. I'm not sure that applies on a class level, but I think it applies on a service level, right? So maybe it shouldn't. You shouldn't have to pay for the boundary because you have to be really aware that a service boundary is. is a service boundary is hard, is, is expensive to cross, and you don't want to waste that on something where it's not worth the whole thing, right? So if you don't need any of the independence, don't just foolishly apply the same pattern over and over and forget that there are other ways of modernization as well. So I think it's worthwhile to have different strategies. Um, next one was, can I, can I mix a system with different size? I think I answered that because I think you very much can have a system, a system mixed with services of different sizes. That's perfectly fine. They might sit on different levels and be different kinds of things, but maybe that doesn't even matter. I think it's a good idea. Maybe just be a little more explicit. Don't leave it to chance to come up with those things. And maybe the final one, how does an SCS work if I have multiple clients, e.g. web and mobile? Um, so my favorite thing is that, uh, I think Richard Urbach said that at a go-to some time ago, 
um, I think the, uh, a good service, a good RESTful service is like a simple, ugly website. So if you have a good website that works everywhere, you're very close to having a good service that works everywhere. So just have a mobile thing consume that service that is very similar to the thing you built as a decent website. But that was a very quick answer. I'll be happy to discuss it in more detail afterwards. Should I leave it at that or shall I ask the audience whether they have more? We have time for one more question. So anybody want to ask one more thing? Rebecca. Yeah, given that you talked about these different, um, uh, you know, sizes, mm -hmm. and what about teams and how they fit to those sizes? Because, again, that's, you know, if I have one of these bigger things, then I might have bigger teams and they cross-cut with these. Anyway, just thoughts about yeah. that. Yeah, very good point. So I think the maximum size of a service is the thing a, team, a single team can handle. You can never have, in this model, a service that is bigger so that you need two teams to work with it. Then, you, then it's an obvious forced separation and you should split it apart. Otherwise, it doesn't follow this model, right? Maybe sometimes you can't do that. Some, maybe you may have reasons for not doing that, but then I wouldn't, be, then I wouldn't talk about the microservices architecture. I think this is the, a, a, key, a key trait, an absolute requirement. All right, so when you say team, what do you mean by that? So the question is, when I say team, what do I mean by that? Right, so ideally, in my view, the team is, as, as James pointed out as well, a cross-functional team that includes all the people operating this, but that's not doable in every kind of organization. There are organizations where, for example, you have a strict separation between development operations. That is unfortunate. I think it's, a, it's very sad, and you should do something about it, but maybe you have to pick your battles, and maybe you want to start with, the, with some other thing and then leave that as is for now, so it works as well. Well, not as well. It works with just developers, too, just not as well. Not as, it's not as ideal, but it works as well. Okay. So thanks again. Have a good day. Thank you.